Hey everyone, this is Caleb here from In the Mood for Real History. Now before you get started with this episode, if you haven't heard, I want to tell you about Anchor. It's the easiest way to make a podcast, so let me explain it to you. First off, being on a teacher's salary, I love that it is free. There's also creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. So make sure to download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Regina King for Cadillac Escalade. When people ask, Regina, do you like to compete? I say, bring it on. Those are the moments that drive you to achieve more. And when you win, you keep reaching higher. To me, that's what the Cadillac Escalade represents. It's always evolving in technology, in design, everything. Because success isn't the end. It's just the first step to what comes next. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving. Hello and streaming to you live from one of the few places in Alabama with any common sense. This is In the Mood to Learn Real History, where I'm on a mission to make history real again. With today's society filled with fake news and all-out lies in our history books, every week we're going to take an episode-by-episode look into the obscure and the major events of history, but it's going to be from a people's perspective. So instead of hearing that same old stories in your history books that you most likely slept through, we look at these events from a perspective of everyday people and how they, not the glorified leaders, truly shaped our history. I'm your host, Caleb Mood. So I want to start out by saying that I'm so thankful for your support. And if you enjoy this episode, be sure to hit that thumbs up and subscribe button that's down below. I always appreciate any comments or feedback. Before we get going this week, I want to address all of the people who have watched and commented with such hate in the last few days. Please, I would love for someone to please explain to me how someone simply presenting some alternative opinion that may differ from your own deems me being worthy of being wiped off the face of the earth. Are you so insecure in your own beliefs that at the first instance of someone mentioning something that you don't agree with, you have to lash out with violent physical threats? Do I expect everyone that watches this video to agree with what I have to say? Hell no. My goal is to simply challenge people's beliefs and get them to think outside of their own narrow-laned view. I desire for people to see that just because something does not affect you personally does not mean that people are not out there suffering and have been systematically oppressed by the current setup in our government. So to all those wonderful comments I received making physical threats on me, my response to you is this, no, no, I'm not going to be intimidated by your pathetic attempt to make yourself feel better and compensate for certain aspects that you're lacking in your life. I'm going to keep producing content that will piss you off and it's going to go against your beliefs. But consider this, if it makes you feel so uncomfortable, is it because I'm wrong or is it because deep down you are doubting yourself? I'll leave them with this quote by the late, great Howard Zinn. The cry of the poor is not always just, but if you don't listen to it, you will never know what true justice is. So anyway, let's get back to our regular programming. Welcome back to part three of our series on democratic socialism. Last week, we discussed the achievements and shortcomings of attempts to right the wrongs of our country's racist past. We looked at the first two reconstruction eras and why we need a third reconstruction to finally bring about a more just nation for everyone. 
So this week, we're going to discuss how three policies, a federal job guarantee, baby bonds, and reparations make up what I call the three-legged stool for justice. These three policies together would establish a firm foundation for racial economic justice that's across the board in the United States. By the end of this episode, I'm going to explain this case that is being made by democratic socialists. That case being, instead of our current capitalist system that promotes racial and economic inequality, the U.S. should adopt an economic framework that is administered in a race-conscious way. Essentially, it's an economic framework that eradicates barriers that preserve inequalities, exclusionary job practices, and other aspects that hurt workers of color. So my first question to you is when you think of a foundational piece of any society, what do you picture first? When you are growing up, why are we being told that we need to do well in school? Most of us heard, you know, you want to be able to get a great job and you want to struggle less than your parents did before us. That American dream is being able to find a job with decent wages and one that brings you fulfillment. Unfortunately, it's long been clear that a private sector alone cannot achieve this goal. Neither can capitalist markets that offer both protections against worker exploitation and opportunities for social mobility. These things require something called public policy. And any gains made on these fronts have been due to two things, a government policy and social movements that, that demand radical change. Even during periods of economic growth, wealth, uh, wealth and inequality will continue to widen. The only way to curtail runaway wealth hoarding is if the government creates rules that create shared prosperity. Now, let me make something clear before we keep going. Before I know, or because I know people will jump to say, he's pushing to support all them lazy people that don't want to work. I'm not saying that uh, one group should shoulder the burden for everyone else. I'm simply calling for the exact opposite, actually. I'm saying that all who desire to work should be guaranteed the right to a decent wage and the right to live a dignified life. That is what true full employment will look like in our country. But I, and I know next, but Caleb, we're living in some of the greatest periods of economic gains. Well, in a sense, you're correct. Over the last half century, our country has witnessed tremendous economic gains from increased produ productivity but those gains have gone to the elite and upper middle class while the working class's wages have remained stagnant, flat. These inequalities are especially pronounced for women, African-Americans, and other people of color. This desire for true full employment is not some new crazy idea. In fact, FDR is among the most notable proponents for true employment. Many of his New Deal programs reflected this belief in the necessity of full employment. In fact, during his 1944 State of the Union address, he called for an expansion to the Bill of Rights that recognizes economic rights as well. Roosevelt observed, need, observed and stated, needful men are not free men. They, those who are hungry and out of a job are the stuff of which dictators are made. He continued staying, stating, moreover, the real freedom to pursue happiness requires a second bill of rights where a new basis of security and prosperity can be had by all. Essentially, FDR believed that full citizenship demanded more than political rights that were laid out in our original bill of rights. 
He believed that it required economic rights and more importantly, the right to a useful job. So these policy proposals by FDR would be a staple in a democratic socialist America. In this version of America, public policy would empower all people to live a dignified life and would shield vulnerable populations from predatory practices. These predatory practices involve a single-minded focus on profits over people. So how do we even get in this situation to begin with? Let's start by looking at the history of wage inequalities. In 1940, the typical black male earned less than 45% of the earnings of a white male. By 1980, black men earned a little uh, over 70% of the average white man's wage. But by the dawn of the Reagan years, this progress ceased altogether. This halt in progress was explained by focusing on education and individual attitudes being the key to upward mobility. So essentially, this narrative began that stated, if African Americans were more responsible, made better decisions, and focused on education, they would continue to succeed. Then please riddle me this, Batman. How do you explain the fact that unemployment rates for African Americans have remained roughly twice as high as the white rate, regardless of education? Moreover, wealth disparities persist with high, high levels of education too. Black head of households with a college degree have less wealth than white households where the head of the house dropped out of high school. How the hell do you explain that one to me? Well, it's simple and will make Charlie Kirk and all the other conservatives head explode. Race is an even stronger predictor of wealth than class itself. Still don't believe me? Well, unlike uh, Trump's unhinged conspiracy theories, I have some legit facts that I'm gonna share with you. According to the 2016 survey on consumer finances, the typical black family has about $17,500 in wealth. In contrast, the typical white family has about $171,000 in wealth. That is literally a 10% difference. So where does this giant wealth gap come from? So it's a holdover from slavery where African-Americans were literally assets for the white elites. How can we expect there to be equality in wealth when not even 200 years ago, black people were the fucking measurement of wealth? But Caleb, the free market, laissez-faire. What about pull yourself up by your bootstraps? Well, what is glaringly absent from this line of thinking is how the supposedly free markets are molded by the elite to fit their own interests. Without government intervention, the inequality will continue. And I can hear it now. Okay, Snowflake, well, how do you plan on, how do you suggest that we fix all this? Well, Boomer, let, I'm glad that you asked. The remedy is a race-conscious economic bill of rights that looks beyond human behaviors. Instead, it works to break down the barriers that preserve economic inequalities. How exactly do we break these barriers down? How do, you, how do we plan on doing that? Three things, a federal job guarantee, baby bonds, and finally, an acknowledgement of our country's racist past through a system of reparations. So let's start off with the universal positives of a federal job guarantee. So, Today's economists associate the term full employment with a 4 to 6% unemployment rate. This measure accounts for workers who do not have a job, those who look for a job, and those who, have not been able, who are, are available to find work. It does not count the millions who have stopped seeking employment or are seasonal workers. 
even when the unemployment rate is low, there are still millions that are out of work because job seekers will always outnumber the available open jobs. Historical unemployment data highlights this persistent trend of discriminatory labor practices. The impact of joblessness extends beyond financial hardship and damages the human spirit as well. A Johns Hopkins University studied the link between economic fluctuations and, national, and the nation's physical and mental health. They found that for every 1% increase in the unemployment rate, we can expect an additional 47,000 deaths nationwide. This has never been more true or relevant than since the coronavirus pandemic has spread across our nation. Alleviating these hardships with a truly full unemployment uh, economy is not only a proven solution, but is also not a new idea. Along with FDR's Economic Bill of Rights, full employment was a cornerstone of the famed 1963 March on Washington. Also, other countries such as India and Argentina have employed job guarantee programs that have been met with much success. India's full employment program has resulted in 600 million workers that are eligible for employment and have helped alleviate poverty by increasing low-income households' earnings by up to 13%. So that's a look at worldwide. Let's look back at the United States. So when determining uh, which projects would be included in the full employment program, priority should be given to those that aid distressed communities. Priority should be given to 21st century infrastructure, such as uh, needs like child care and elder care. Essentially, they can be divided into three categories. Care for the environment, first off. This includes tree planting, fire and other disaster prevention, and home weatherization. Number two is care for the community. This involves restoration of public spaces and neighborhood revitalization. The last is care for people. This involves elder care, after-school programs, and health awareness. Just like the work programs of FDR's New Deal, a job guarantee would not only provide jobs to anyone who desires it, but it would also provide an increase of goods and services that benefit all people. So now we move on to our second leg of our policies for justice, and that is baby bonds. As critical as a federal job guarantee is for tackling income inequality, other policies are needed to address our nation's dramatic wealth disparity. Baby bonds, or also known as baby trusts, would establish a substantial child trust account that is set up by the government for every child. So this program provides all newborns with an opportunity to have an asset that will appreciate in value as they age. This would establish a birthright to capital for all young adults that is usually just a privilege that's reserved for those born into wealth. These accounts would endow American newborns with an average account of $25,000 that gradually rises to $60,000 for babies born into the poorest families. So these funds would be generally managed and um, or would be federally managed and would grow at a guaranteed rate of 2% each year. When the child turns 18, they can uh, access these assets that could be used for a number of wealth generating activities. These activities include a debt-free college education, a down payment on a home, or capital to start a new business. The program would complement our existing social security system that would provide every American access to capital from birth to death. 
So in short, baby bonds would form the foundation of an economically secure life that would allow all Americans the chance to build wealth regardless of the situation that they were actually born into. And given how little wealth is held by people of color compared to whites, it is a program that is geared towards helping communities of color, but also ones that benefit all Americans. So here's the fun question. How are we gonna pay for this? For all of you math people, approximately 4 million babies are born each year in the US. And the average amount of a baby bond being $25,000, that would cost about 20 or $100 billion a year. So for all of my students who make fun of my lack thereof of math skills in your face, first off. Second off, that $100 billion is only 2% of our yearly spending on our national budget. That is far less than the more than $500 billion a year that is already spent on tax breaks, let alone the 2018 $1.3 trillion Republican tax cut for the wealthy. Overall, baby bonds represent a break from the national or the false narrative that inequality is due to in an individual's personal faults. This narrative greatly ignores the advantages of inherited wealth. Instead, the public provision of a birthright to capital would go a long way towards establishing a moral and decent economy that facilitates economic security for all citizens, regardless of their class or race. Come stay and play at Live Casino and Hotel. Welcome to one of the biggest casinos in the country with luxurious clean rooms, upscale dining, and the grandest payouts. Now offering stay and play and all in packages, including $50 free slot play, VIP parking, VIP casino access, and more. Book now at livecasino.com or call 443-445-2929 at Arundel Mills. Must be 21. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgambling.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER. So we've covered a federal job guarantee and we've covered baby bonds. Now we're reaching our third and final leg of our policies for justice, reparations. So previously... Uh, we discussed baby bonds at a federal job guarantee are pillars for establishing an economic bill of rights that helps to ensure access to wealth and economic security. However, the most direct and just approach to address racial inequality and to right the wrongs of our nation's racist past is a comprehensive reparations program. This program would include two aspects. We must have a well-documented acknowledgement and account of our nation's racial history. So flowing from this acknowledgement would be a compensatory restitution of lost capital and structural reforms to facilitate wealth accumulation. A well-documented doc acknowledgement and account of our racial history is necessary, but not a sufficient condition of racial justice. Acknowledging the state-sanctioned terror against black bodies, the seizure of black wealth, and exclusion from government wealth-building policies is critical for the American psyche. We cannot move forward as a nation until we own up to the sins of our past. An honest and sobering confession of our historical sins would pave the way for a new narrative and a better understanding of inequality and poverty. Inequality and poverty are highly racialized in, in the United States. Markets are supposedly self-regulating, which means that the most valued and hardest workers are believed to prosper, while the least, values and, least valued and lazy are believed to simply fade away. But it's kind of hard to prosper when you have numerous barriers to cross before you even get started. 
these undeserving pores, poor people are stigmatized whether they are actually black or not. Any sort of state interventions to promote social mobility are seen as unnecessary or will only incentivize bad behavior. A comprehensive reparations program would work to help change this narrative by showing that the markets are not a neutral and level playing field. However, though, simply an acknowledgement and apology alone will be empty if not accompanied by some sort of material redress. It is only with both of these factors that America can truly have racial justice. So there are multiple ways that reparations can be paid that also includes a direct cash advance. Included in that direct cash payment though, would be some sort of ownership of land or other means of production. The racial wealth gap itself is an implicit measure of our racist past. That began with black people being considered capital and it evolved into a system in which black bodies and black wealth was subject to government confiscation. It was also never the case that a white asset-based middle-class just magically emerged. Rather, it was through government policies. These policies provided many whites the finance, education, land, and other resources they needed to accumulate and pass down wealth. In contrast, African-Americans were largely, largely excluded from these wealth-generating benefits. As a result, as a group, they have very little ownership in America's land or means of production. So how to actually make this happen? A decent first step for this would be for Congress to pass some version of H.R. 40, which calls for an official committee to study proposals for rep reparations. In 1989, Congressman, uh, Michigan Congressman John Conyers introduced H.R. 40, but it was never actually called to a vote. To be able to pass a program of this magnitude, would also require a broad-based social movement and a multiracial coalition. This is needed to counterbalance a predominantly white and wealthy-owning class that has worked throughout U.S. history to divide the working class based on race. Elites consistently encourage the whites to sacrifice the economic gains that can be attained through multiracial solidarity in order to, in order to preserve the social status that whiteness offers. And if you don't believe me, let's just, you know, take a look at a recent election, that being the 2016 election. Trump set out to make a clear, loud, and boisterous appeal to whiteness. His campaign slogan, Make America Great Again, gestured toward a fictional time in which white dominance was unquestioned and unchallenged. His other quotes like, I am your last chance, those were clear overtures to a pending demographic shift in which white people will no longer be a numerical majority. So as you can see, an authentic multiracial coalition to address the obscene concentration of power requires white people to reject their own racialized self-interest in, in order to pursue a widespread prosperity that's grounded in morality. With calls of policies like a federal job guarantee, baby bonds and reparations, Younger generations are starting to redefine economic good. Instead of focusing on runaway wealth concentration at the top, we can focus on incorporating sustainability and humanity into our economy. It is time to translate the ideals of economic justice for, uh, into being a moral imperative to a public policy framework that fits into the 21st century. This would be an economy that for the first time in our history would work for all people. 
So finally, I'm so thankful for your support. If you enjoyed this episode and want to let me know how I'm doing, feel free to like and subscribe to my channel, In the Mood for Real History. I always appreciate any comments or feedback, even if those comments think, uh, include people that think I'm a crazy socialist, just because they don't know, you know, actual definitions. But anyway, until next week, this is Caleb Mood, and I want to remind you that the most revolutionary act that one can engage in is to simply tell the truth. Thank you, and have a great week. Regina King for Cadillac Escalade. When people ask, Regina, do you like to compete? I say, bring it on. Those are the moments that drive you to achieve more. And when you win, you keep reaching higher. To me, that's what the Cadillac Escalade represents. It's always evolving in technology, in design, everything. Because success isn't the end, it's just the first step to what comes next. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving. Regina King for Cadillac Escalade. When people ask, Regina, do you like to compete? I say, bring it on. Those are the moments that drive you to achieve more. And when you win, you keep reaching higher. To me, that's what the Cadillac Escalade represents. It's always evolving in technology, in design, everything. Because success isn't the end, it's just the first step to what comes next. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving.